Welcome to the Elmo and Doris Different Podcast. You're listening to the Elmo Adore Difference, a podcast that gets people from all walks of life to share powerful ideas and spread good vibes. My name's Elmo Adore Jr. and I'm a young Filipino passionate about the individuality every person can bring to the table. And I'm talking to unique people about how they see the world and how to make a difference. Joel Yoeli. He is from Newcastle, no- north of England. He is 70 years old and he is a retired consultant cl- and cl- clinical psychologist. He works with children, adults, uh, family relationships, has a degree in philosophy and a PhD in psychology. And so, uh, uh, Joel, is there anything you want to say to the people listening? Well, I was exposed to philosophy from a very young age. I come from a very unique environment called kibbutz. Kibbutz is a collective agricultural, later on industrial, settlement in Israel that has been around for more than 100 years, in which many people, especially from Eastern Europe, Uh, have decided to abandon their careers and to settle uh, in an agricultural, collective, communal, uh, ideal, utopian sort of social experiment. And I'm the son. I'm the son of one of them. Yes. Okay. So all these people are. Almost all of them were uh, university dropouts. That is, they were highly intellectual and were debating all day long and all night long uh, big ideas of philosophy and politics and culture. And I, as a child, uh, I think I owe it to them that I was surrounded by endless discussions like that. And, and to this day, I continue, or I'm most interested in humanity and uh, history and why people are as they are and why can't they change things in the way I think, I believe it is possible. Uh, and so whilst I practice or practiced more psychology, I have always taken a vivid interest in philosophy. Uh, to my surprise, I found, especially in the British Isles, I found that analytical philosophy prevails over my background in philosophy, which is more continental or more precisely French and German, which is my interest. In other words, what is called speculative philosophy rather than analytical or analytic philosophy. A philosophy that is interested in human beings and is interested in feelings and is interested in relationships and uh, a person or an individual in society rather than logic and the fine 
uh, arguments about language and who can prove what with which foundations. Although I don't mind that, it seems to me, and I hope you don't mind me saying that, it seems to me, it seems to me juvenile or to put it even more provocative, infantile, to try to prove that you are better than another person. And I'm not better than anyone. I simply care about human beings. And it seems to me, ultimately, ultimately is an important word. The reason people are unhappy or cannot do what they want to do is not economical or political, but rather philosophical. Okay, uh, not even psychological, although of course at an individual level, I uh, offer help and I understand why people do as they do or try to understand at any rate. Uh, when it comes to a social level, namely why so many people are unhappy, then it seems psychology won't do. In which case, as I have done all my life, I turn to philosophy. As I turn to philosophy, I go back, perhaps more than anyone I know, I go back to Socrates and only Socrates. And I try and, I try and avoid as best I can, although I am interested in Kant and Hegel, I try to avoid them because it seems to me it has already when it reaches them it has already gone astray so i'm interested in how philosophy is born and it seems to me it's born from the idea that humans are not free in other words humans are enslaved or uh, constructed or twisted or however you look at it by themselves and each other. Obviously, there are economic and, and uh, race and, and gender and endless uh, uh, constraints on freedom. But the main freedom seems to be the inability to think. So I find that human beings, as they live a life, never mind as they talk, as they live a life, it seems to me, and it sounds a bit provocative and I apologize to my audience, but it seems to me they don't make sense. Humanity doesn't make sense. Human beings live without thinking about what life is. And as a result, things go wrong. And not only go wrong for themselves, but go wrong for other people, for those around them and beyond society at large, and largely it has got to do with uh, not able to conceptualize the fundamental foundations or, or building blocks of life, of self and reality and truth and good and courage and virtue and wisdom and all the rest of it. So it seems to me, or no, before I say that, it has been said two things at least about Socrates. One, that he is on a journey from custom to character, uh, which in Greek is the same word. So that word is ethos or ethos. And I don't know quite how in Greek it manifests, but the idea is 
that he felt that we are simply creatures of habit, unconvention, uncustom, unculture, and um, social, nowadays we would say, construction. And he felt that human beings need to individuate and they need to be, to think for themselves and they need to subject uh, wisdom or in received, it's called it, let's call it received wisdom. They need to subject it to a critical thinking of their own, such that they distill from it a better guidance for life. Because in and of itself, it isn't, it fails. It's just an accumulation of what passes between the generations without sufficient uh, questioning of it. And so not only there isn't an opening to thinking, but it rusts, it fossilizes, it gets worse from one generation to the next, it gets worse and worse. And, and unless people question and uh, subject it to scrutiny and thinking and conversation and dialogue and all the rest, inquiry, all these wonderful words, it will get worse and worse further. So I'm sorry about the noise a little bit outside the door, but I try my best. Yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. It's okay. So uh, uh, I, I want to ask something. Um, I have to contradict you there because humanity isn't as uh, complex as you say they are because I know millions or billions of people are so simple and live their lives and don't care about any inquiry, philosophical crisis whatsoever because, well, if you can uh, think about Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a lot of uh, billions of humans are still uh, facing the, the constant need to find security, food, work, money. And so they have uh, no time for self-realization and it just makes their lives simpler. I, I guess that you say that philosophy is one of the essential things in order to uh, solve uh, issues and conditions by which uh, psychology, normal medical psychology cannot solve, but that uh, humans, a lot of humans are simple, you know, they just live, they eat, they work, and then they die. And a lot of people are satisfied with that and don't care about any existential crisis or any inquiry philosophically because yeah, they basically they are simple and they don't care. And usually their uh, questions about the meaning of life are answered by uh, normal religions, for example, like Christianity, Islam, Hinduism. Those are already answers to any uh, universal questions. Uh, 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 do you uh, agree or disagree with me? I profoundly disagree. Mm -hmm. Do you want me to expand? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. First, yeah, please. Yeah, first of all, I don't accept Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I think like any model, it reflects a philosophical predisposition. A view, an a priori view by which you come to see the conditions of existence or the way by which people live or think or work or relate. And his is based on like most people nowadays on exactly as you described, on the economic, on the most fundamental basic needs of the body, if you like. And he puts, although he calls it self-actualization and so on, behind these words, there is simply the idea that the way we think does not precede the way we eat. And I argue it does precede the way we eat or the way we think, or the way we are, or the way we feel. And so they may be happy, but as they say, ignorance is bliss. And uh, bliss is a wonderful illusion, by we, arguably, by which people believe they are happy, but aren't. I mean, who am I to say to a person, you are not what you claim you are. So I have to accept humbly that if someone tells me uh, I am happy, I am not going to argue or try to persuade them that they are not. I will take what they say, face value, of course. But as I look at things beyond an individual or even millions or billions, as you say, who you claim, uh, and I, 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 I am prepared to go along with it, that they are happy, then, of course, the classical formula of uh, evil is ignorance emerges or raises its ugly head. As you know, the Greeks said that there is no evil. In other words, it's an appearance. And behind it, what there is, is ignorance. That was the word that emerges as the first philosophical attempt to understand, I'm not saying the last, but the first philosophical attempt to understand where evil comes from. And according to them, it comes from lack of knowledge. Well, that's wrong. Well, okay, go you on. Know, yeah, because uh, evil is sometimes pure intention. And it, 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 evil is intention, that means that there is foreknowledge that what you do is wrong, but you intend to do it because of your own motivations and your own uh, insight into the situation. For example, there, are, there may be uh, criminally insane people, but there are super healthy people who do criminal acts not because of ignorance, but because they know what they're doing and it is not a basis of ignorance but it is more of they are uh, they are more aware of the situation and so they are able to take advantage of others and so uh, i i don't uh, agree that evil sources from ignorance uh yeah is that is that uh, do you agree <laughs> well elmo i look forward to years and years of exchange because what you say it's not whether i agree or not it is that as i said i try my best i'm not a great scholar but i try my best to immerse myself in philosophy and i know 
I know especially about classical philosophy. And I simply said, before I go into what I think, I simply said that that was the first attempt, or at least philosophical attempt, to address a big question. Where does evil come from, what it is, and so on and so forth. Now, you offer an answer itself profoundly philosophical. You say that they know, many assumptions there, and you say that they intend, and you say the intention uh, goes side by side with knowledge, and you then invoke the notion of mental illness or insanity in order to support your argument of where evil comes from. Yeah, I mentioned the criminally insane as an exclusion or an exception to those who are healthy, mentally healthy, that still do evil acts. Elmo, I'm afraid to say, and it will be extremely provocative, I know that, there are no criminally, criminally insane people. It's a fiction of imagination. It's a social construct. Well, that's really surprising. I've never heard such a concept that, okay, I, I want to know. I want to know. Keep talking. This is interesting. Why? Okay. Well, you know, first of all, that there is a big debate. They will never be settled, but it's interesting between nature and nurture. So there is obviously in all of us a mix or an interaction between our genes and our chromosomes and our brain and our neurons and all the rest of it, and between childhood and parents and environment and school and peers and society at large. So that has always been the case and will always be the case. And I'm not here to settle this discussion. But I begin a, a process here. The process is that society matters. And it matters on at least two fronts. A, in terms of how it shapes us, and B, in terms of how it perceives us. Um, so ontology and epistemology, if you want to use these words, society creates our very ontology. It is behind the way we are. Every single human being is a product of, of the way society constructs us. That's number one. Number two, it's adding insult to injury, not enough of having constructed us, it, it goes on to interpret us. It is telling us the way you are, what you do, the way you manifest themselves, the way you look, and all these things. I am going to tell you, I'm going to stick labels on you, and I'm going to put you in a category, and I'm going to classify you along some scientific paradigms, so that not only having made you I'm now going to tell you, I will be the authority, the sole authority over and above your own thinking to tell you who you are. And I don't accept that. Having worked with very many, many people, some of them really disturbed, some of them psychotic, some of them psychopathic. By no means I have worked with the most difficult ones, but I have worked with very difficult people in psychiatric hospitals. They were open to a different interpretation. And one could always see it from another angle. 
And that's very important because society is powerful and most people, particularly the so-called criminally insane, are very susceptible to social construction. They fall into being in the way they are gazed upon, in the way they are perceived. And so we can't separate the wheat from the chaff. In other words, there may be, I admit, there may be all sorts of predisposition there, genetic or chromos chromosomal, chromosomal or, or, or hormonal, or call it what you like, there may be. But even though they may have all sorts of disabilities or dysfunctions, there is a powerful, entry of other people into their lives that has been missed, has been overlooked. People all too readily would say, oh, he is an idiot, or he is mad, or he is uh, <clears throat> evil, and so, or ma uh, bad, mad, and, and sad, or whatever, all these things. And I worked with many people in which I begged to differ. I came to people as best I could, and I said, Maybe not. Maybe he simply misunderstood. You know, it's a very simple notion. To understand people is difficult. We must be humble, especially in extreme manifestations. We have to think and think again. And we have to inquire and ask questions, no end. And perhaps we will never find the answer, but that does not mean to say that we can settle on an easy answer that a person is judged by their actions. <clears throat> it may very well be that the actions do not reflect the way the person is. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to stop you there. I want to stop you there. Uh, I want to settle this before we move on. Is that uh, justice, the justice system is based on uh, an, an ideal of virtue and values that society holds. And so uh, the one thing that uh, categorizing people into criminal insane or healthy, mental healthy, is that their accountability for their actions. And if you are, if you are, if you are mentally healthy, you will be held accountable with, because you had intention, for example, murder. Uh, uh, when it comes to murder compared to reckless endangerment or uh, homicide or crimes of passion, they have less uh, accountability compared to those who have uh, have a pre-intention to kill. And so, uh, the one thing that society uh, measures uh, intention is through their faculties, their mental capacities. And uh, I could say that it's not just a social construct because biology cannot be socially constructed. And so society categorizes people from criminally insane to healthy or to uh, other categories because of scientific facts where their intention or their motivations were either uh, caused by uh, schizophrenia, dementia, mental disabilities, or it could be that their they have their faculty, mental faculties are super healthy and uh, they have would they would have no excuse for any criminal acts they do. Uh, so I'm I'm saying I'm telling you that uh, it is biological, it is scientific, 
which is the categor categorizations of people in and how they, the justice system uh, convicts them. Well, we. I look forward, as I said, the justice system is a reflection of the way society thinks uh, as best it can, and no doubt it has good intentions. I am not dismissing it at all. Uh, but uh, you said there are so many things and uh, so many hidden assumptions were not examined. Uh, and I don't know where to start. Uh, the words you mentioned, schizophrenia and, and so on, are uh, very questionable. All we know uh, at this stage in uh, my field is uh, that we experience or witness a cluster of symptoms. In other words, we know that some symptoms go with others. Let's say delusions or hallucinations go with uh, bizarre behavior or, or a word salad or, or loose associations of thought or any such old thing. We don't know that these clusters come together into a defined entity. In other words, schizophrenia or whatever is just a word they overlap with one another. Every study or most studies conclude that you can't sufficiently distinguish between, let's say, schizophrenia and manic depressions, depressive psychosis, and so on and so forth. So any careful clinician, and I hope I am a careful clinician, knows that you should try not to diagnose, but you should try to address the symptoms as uh, manifestations of something that you as yet cannot put together under a term. So there aren't, I put it provocatively, now you know me a little bit, there is no such thing as schizophrenia. That is not to say that there are no people who behave like that, but the term schizophrenia is, can you can poke holes from uh, the right at the center. It will collapse under any scrutiny, any philosophical scrutiny. So that's one. The other thing, as you know, across cultures, as you uh, hinted yourself, there is a clause in any criminal justice system, which is lack of responsibility on grounds of mental illness, or however any system puts it. And I was, for all my sins, amongst many who were called to courts to testify whether a person is responsible for their actions or not. Perhaps I'm more honest than my colleagues, perhaps I'm more philosophical than my colleagues, but I hereby, uh, I stand before you, Elmo, and I say, I can't possibly, I couldn't possibly ever say whether a person was or wasn't. It was only uh, with, uh, within uh, context or taking into account a variety of variables and severity of crime and, and, uh, and, and guided by lawyers and QCs and, and what have you, that I was interrogated a lot in court and tried to do my best in collaboration with others to reach as just a verdict as we could. 
But I don't think that tells us anything because the criminal justice system, like any system, obeys its own rules. In other words, it needs to be looked at in itself as a philosophical construct. Uh, and that's a big problem. And we all, of course, are part, uh, even you and I, and let alone all these people who commit crimes, we fall under social frameworks within which we act and are judged and, and, and judge ourselves or whatever. Now, let me tell you something, and you stop me whenever you like. The most productive model in mental health is called the developmental model, which anchors so-called irresponsible or insane behavior in childhood. In other words, people, for whatever reason, and I can go on and on about it, for whatever reason, fail to reach maturity or adult responsibility. That's all there is to it. It's not on grounds of genetics. It's not on ground of insanity. Uh, God knows, it, obviously, it's, that is part of it. But all we can say is that they are living, sorry, um, grown-up children. That's all there is to it. So 10% or 20% or whatever of humanity, I would provocatively would say 90%, but leave that aside. 10% of humanity have not been able to negotiate successfully the 20 years of growing up. As a result, go on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's really uh, very interesting. And I, I, I'm not a psychologist, but I want you to criticize me on my opinions. For example, uh, as you said that a lot of people have not developed into adulthood because of they were probably disturbed in the process of uh, growing up in the first 20 years of their lives. And so, uh, does it uh, have uh, Freudian uh, principles by which uh, the processes of uh, fixation and all of that uh, is that really uh, is that part of modern psychology or is Freud and Jung just uh, uh, monuments of the past? Well, you know, uh, I want to know from a real psychologist. Well, we are here in a philosophical discussion, so from from this mm -hmm. point of view, uh, uh, they. It's one answer, but uh, you want from within clinical psychology. Okay, so within clinical psychology, Freud is, if you like, I don't know if relic of the past, but has been in on many counts proved wrong or proved uh, inaccurate, or the model he used was not sufficiently scientific, or he relies too much on on clinical work with individuals, or a, a, lots and lots of criticisms against Freud. I am not either Freudian or non-Freudian. It seems to me uh, that doesn't matter. Freud contributed along many, many others. Maybe he's more famous or more provocative, I don't know. But I never took him uh, more seriously than I have taken anyone else. And so I give him the credit of an attempt at psychology. As I give that credit to any attempt at psychology, I wouldn't put Freud on one side of the 
equation versus, let's say, cognitive psychology or behavioral psychology. I wouldn't play that game. I would say uh, psychology is a young science, and Freud counts amongst many others who are trying to base it on scientific foundations. And that's enough. The fact that Freud enjoys such culture, it has become a cultural icon, is neither here nor there. It doesn't either negate or affirm uh, his contribution to my field. I, I, I think I deconstruct Freud. I personally think that you have to read him. I read every word of his, as I read so many other works, and I came to my views, or more to the point, the way I practice is to some extent informed by what he said, because he had a lot to say and he was a wise guy. And to a large extent, I have uh, scrutinized, let's say, his emphasis on sex and so on as not as important as he claimed it was. Uh, but so what? I mean, in, in what way? I mean, we could go over one after another, Bandura and Skinner and Pavlov. So what? I mean, yes, we, we could talk one day about the philosophy of psychology, but we are now talking So, sorry about that. Someone's trying to ring the phone. Okay. I'm sorry about that. So uh, it's neither Freudian nor not Freudian. The idea of childhood is far more scientific in the, se in the sense that roots of the tree contain some, or seeds even, of the tree contain in them some answers as to what the tree is going to become and how the branches and the fruits and the flowers and so on and the trunk will emerge from them. In that sense, childhood over and above Freud is very significant, particularly the children are impressionable and suggestible and susceptible to others. And so I come here to another provocative statement. A child, and by extension a person, is the sum total of many caring individuals around that person who inadvertently, inadvertently, that's important, uh, contributed to things going wrong. And the result is that that a very grand statement. The result is that when things go wrong, by and large, it comes from elsewhere. When things go right, by and large, it comes from the natural growth of the organism. And so the idea of evil stretches beyond the ignorance of the evildoer into those who cared for that person who became evil, who themselves out of ignorance have by default, inadvertently, I never blame anyone, have come to contribute to things going wrong and thereby stand behind an individual who grew up to be evil. That means that society inadvertently and unknowingly and ignorantly 
stands behind evil. And whether people are happy or not, as you describe them, they create the misery by default. Not all of them, and I don't blame anyone, but there is a possibility that your ignorance, or sorry, your bliss or happiness, there is a price to pay. In other words, if you don't educate yourself, you are more liable, shall we say it carefully, to contribute to an outgrowth of evil around you. That is very disturbing insight, if true. Yeah, so, okay, okay. Um, so I, I want to ask you, uh, <clears throat> so uh, from your uh, standards, I, I would say that almost 95% of the world is not as as educated as necessary in order for uh, society to see through their ignorance and eliminate the bliss, eliminate the ignorance, and uh, find out solutions to the miseries that they create by default, right? Yeah, and but but I, I have an argument here. Uh, I'm thinking because. Um, we humans have existed in societies for hundreds of thousands of years, you know? And the principles, the ignorant principles, as you say, would say, uh, of love, justice, which, uh, truth, goodness, which are very, uh, uh, very good, good intention from society, but ba they're basically social constructs. Yet, uh, these principles have guided human civilization uh, to where we are today and uh, towards uh, uh, every, uh, every micro-evolution we have attained through by, uh, by natural selection. Those, those of whom ha who have survived have, have an, uh, as you say, would be in a bubble of ignorance by which they live in, in a, with religious, spiritual, virtuous experiences and have the, this kind of phenomena in their worldview where uh, there is some sort of magical or, or objective metaphysical uh, standards to reality. And so, uh, this is my question. Uh, would it be safe for us human society to just pop the bubble of of illusions of lies of of naturally attained uh heuristics in order for us to survive because it's for example good the idea of justice it's been with human society since the dawn of civilization where criminals are punished and heroes are rewarded if we if we just uh leave that leave that uh, narrative, leave those beliefs, those social values, uh, society would falter. And that's why uh, uh, I want to, that's why I'm saying that, for example, that's wh what we see in Marxist societies where they uh, eliminated the their past culture and traditions and uh, uh, infiltrated the social norms and uh, put put in their own new belief systems 
And that's where the danger was because human nature was not attuned to that kind of system where there is no capitalist reward system or motivations. Yeah, because, uh, but I'm, I'm probably wrong. Uh, can you correct me? No, no, you are not wrong. And I'm not in the business of correcting. But uh, there is so much to say. I, I would like to listen for hours to you, to others. There is so much to say about it. The first thing, uh, as they say, every bit of progress or every bit of accomplishment in the history of humanity has been achieved through the effort of, the, of a few, sometimes one single individual who stood against the majority of people around him or her and has suffered uh, as a result, like Socrates and so on, a great deal, sacrificing their lives or, or whatever. Uh, nonetheless, enabling us to create, if you like, that uh, what you seem to... St- you, you offer a very uh, stable sort of eternal, uh, constant uh, narrative of being whereas more commonly it is known as a narrative of progress. In other words, humanity is not standing still. From the beginning, it moves, and it moves in zigzag fashion. Sometimes it moves forward, sometimes it moves backwards. But nonetheless, in the long run, A, there is uh, this idea of change that never ends, but beyond it, there is some trajectory, some, Uh, that enables us step by step to address uh, errors or ignorance or or lack of justice or whatever uh, in the past. So that happens all the time. In other words, against the way we think. We we move forward kicking and screaming. Most of us will reject that which later generations will celebrate. Most of us will be against that which obviously patently is the case. And it is thanks to the efforts of very few individuals that history at all uh, was possible in the first place. That's the first thing. But more to the point, in the history of ideas, there is a period of time known as the axial age that roughly extends from 1000 BC to Jesus, roughly, roughly, in which it has been observed across, in those days, China, India, the Middle East, Mesopotamia, and Greece, roughly, uh, uh, give and take, uh, give or take 100 years here and there, there evolved a new set of ideas. Hence the the name Axial Age. So that refers to Confucius and Lao Tse, that, or however you pronounce it, that refers to the Buddha and various Hindu uh, traditions. That refers to the rise of monotheism and uh, Judaism in Mesopotamia. And that refers to the uh, rise of philosophy in 5th century BC in Athens or Greece. 
And it has been observed that they share something in common. In other words, there was an upheaval or a revolution in intellectual revolution that swept the known world of those days. It hasn't perhaps included the Western Hemisphere, perhaps uh, overlooked Asia or, uh, sorry, Africa. But that's really not true because uh, uh, Greece is an answer to Egypt. It has always been. Anyway, that, that's a very um, uh, profound or, or extensive scholarly journey across uh, classical the classical world. But the axial age is what we are talking about when we talk about philosophy. In other words, only then humanity is born. Only then humanity reflects on what before that was inertia or custom or tradition. Only then someone really comes and says, you know what? It could be otherwise. You know what? There is another way to understand things. You know what? There is a natural world that we, in our ignorance, cast as stories, but there is a lot to be discovered, and so on and so forth. So the axial age is the birth even of you and I. In other words, it gave us the freedom, the permission, the inspiration, the, the, the challenge to begin to question received wisdom, which, sorry about that, which if we let guide us, we wouldn't have been today where we are. In other words, we owe to that revolution against received wisdom of many, many generations, we owe our survival. Never mind that we now have other trou troubles like climate change and so on. Uh, you know, I can't answer all the problems, but I'm saying in the history of philosophy, philosophy stands as one offshoot, one uh, flower amongst so many that uh, uh, enabled intellectual pursuits to change gear. Now, I want to say just one more thing, very controversial, very. Religion, religion does not precede philosophy. Philosophy precedes religion. Religion is especially Christianity and Islam, but beyond it is merely a working out of philosophy. It is well known that via Stoicism and Epicureanism and via the Rome Republic, Plato, or sorry, Christianity is merely Platonism for the masses, or Plato for the masses, as Nietzsche says. In other words, it is wrong to say that religion, in my opinion at any rate, that religion as we know it today has always been around. It's a new phenomenon whose roots lie essentially in the axial age. Yeah, cool, cool. Uh, but what about uh, the pagan cool. rituals, belief systems? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, all of that. Well, there are two, at least two, there are many, and I'm not a scholar, but two ways to look about it. One is mythos, mythos. In other words, storytelling or narrative, as you call it, or many people call it, was the case beforehand. People told stories. And the stories they told, however many, possibly from the beginning, and the stories they told were 
the pagan belief. It was merely an oral tradition in which a one generation told another, you know, a tree is this god, and a stone or a pebble is another god, and this river is this god, and somebody carries the sun from uh, sunrise to sunset in a chariot of fire, and so on and so forth. That does not qualify as religion. Religion is a very interesting phenomenon which translates into law and translates into that which binds and translates into cosmological uh, explanation applied to how we live a life. Religion is how to live a life. It's a way of being or living or believing or relating or, or, or ritualizing or sacrificing or worshiping or whatever whose roots or intellectual roots lie in philosophical ideas, twisted, no doubt, and distorted beyond belief, but nonetheless, it's an attempt to think rather than to pass on from one generation to another. Now I give, I admit that I give religion too much credit. They don't deserve it, but I'm prepared because I've read so many books about religion. I'm prepared to say that behind religion, there is theology and behind theology, there is philosophy. And theology and philosophy are very similar to one another in the questioning of fundamentals of life. And so what can I say? Paganism, <laughs> here I, I say it very provocatively, is not a religion. So I want to uh, talk about the, you, uh, the individual narratives as a reflection of social zeitgeist. I have no idea what that means, but can you elaborate? Well, before we go into zeitgeist, and increasingly since the postmodernist, uh, mainly Derrida, de but many others, we come to understand, it goes back to the enlightenment actually, we come to understand that everything is a social construct. Every single thing. We never thought about it before. It is only in philosophy, philosophy begins a journey which anchors everything to society. In other words, all ideas, all institutions, and the very self of each individual is at heart, at core, a social construct. As I tried to explain before, we simply agree together. It's a replacement of the oral tradition of storytelling. We seem to agree that somehow, in order to communicate with one another, that meaning is this and that, that truth is this and that, that uh, justice is this and that, and so it goes and the good or ethics is this and that. And whilst we seemingly have a debate with one another, we seem to share ultimately, even existentialism, even postmodernism and so on, we seem to share the foundations of what it means to be alive, what it means to be a body, what it means to be a, a mind, what it means to be a couple, what it means to have sex, and it, it never ends. Every other, or, or gender for that matter, every aspect of life is, and I, I stick my neck out, every aspect of life is a social construct, including biology. Yes, because, because we construct a framework within which we then say it's biological. 
And as you know, or you may not, and I know less than you because I live in the West, but as you know, in India, the notion of mind over matter flourished for hundreds, if not thousands, thousands of years. And uh, many people question the body and question breathing and question illness and, you know, various traditions that enables, uh, enable us all, we comfort creatures of the West, to question the materialistic basis by which we live. Now, again, I'll say something controversial. The belief in biology is an extension of a materialism philosophical worldview. That is not to say that biology is not part of existence, but it's not as important as materialism tends to grant it. It sits next to spirituality, it, makes, it sits next to emotionality, it sits next to the way we think and endless such parameters that can, given certain circumstances, transcend biological constraints. And that is very important because many people anchor being in biology. And that is a philosophical assumption that life is anchored, anchored, that's a big word, in biology. No doubt there is a root or two or three that come from biology. There is no doubt about it. It's not either or. But many people increasingly come to define pain, age, looks, cognitive ability, uh, uh, mood, you name it, anything under the sun as biological. That is a big development in, in the West. And I'm afraid the East follows, although I would like the East to rebel, <laughs> but they don't seem to. And to question, because theirs is a bigger spiritual tradition uh, that questions biology and materialism and economics. Uh, but now led by China, God knows, uh, they, they are even more materialistic than we are here. It's really. A, a big problem. So social construct it is, just to uh, make it a universal, it is the universal of thinking nowadays. Or no, the insight that everything is a social construct enables us to see that everything needs to be thought through again. Or to put it in my terminology, reconceptualized. In other words, everything opens itself to reconceptualization. And we can't take anything for granted. My nose, my mouth, my skin, my age, my gender, everything under the sun, uh, not only my own, the very idea of gender is a social construct rather than an anatomical or biological distinction. As we know, increasingly people claim that their gender is not the way they are. It is imposed on them by society. And you know what? My heart is with them. I support them, not because I ever question my gender, but because I question everything and why not gender? Yeah, um, I'm going to uh, raise two questions here. Okay. Uh, first is uh, towards the scientific community where uh, they have the uh, well empirical uh, studies and 
the truths that are the facts and the research and the studies uh see aren't uh social constructs for example uh the study of anatomy the study of chemistry study of those aren't social constructs they are uh well cal- uh, collected information from reality and uh if everything is a social construct then uh biological sex uh, as we f- how we define a male and from a female then if uh, if that is a social construct then uh it would be very unscientific to to not say that a male is a male because of his uh, chromosomes and female is a female because of her biological differences from a man and so uh, the second question i want you to answer is uh the the, the demolition of social norms as friedrich nietzsche would say that everything would be permissible right and the danger of a human being who actually believes truly believes that everything is a social construct if a human being existed that way and in in all his uh, belief system and worldview it res- resonated that way Uh, he would be no different from a psychopath who sees human beings as creatures who are products of uh, evolution and are just accidents and with no absolute value whatsoever. Because it's just social constructs. Death, murder, crime, good, evil. It's nothing. And so there would be uh, a, a human no different from an animal. And so... Uh, That's just uh, what I'm. Uh, that was uh, what's on my mind, and I hope you can uh, help me answer them. You, I, I congratulate you. You ask big questions, and I am sorry that I go on and on because the nature of the questions requires a lot of, you know, uh, going uh, wider and wider here. But let's take the first question, uh, which is. Um, the natural sciences versus, if you like, social sciences. In other words, philosophy begins, as they say, with a distinction between the pebble and us. I don't know if you heard it, but it's common to refer to it as the pebble. I don't know why the pebble rather than the air or the soil or whatever, but the distinction is between inanimate or uh, lacking at least visible or manifest consciousness uh, element uh, of reality, that is the pebble, and between us who have been animated, as they say. In other words, the whole problem of philosophy, which manifests itself in many, many different ways and uh, schools of thought, is the coexistence of two seemingly different manifestations of the thing or the thing in itself. There is, if you like, I don't need to elaborate on it, but there is the pebble in us, namely our body, if you like, although it's not quite the same thing, but for the sake of argument. And then there is the mind or the spirit or consciousness or thought or however you refer to it. 
And the whole idea of philosophy is not simply to, although that's part of it, science is born out of philosophy. The axial age is a turn towards science. The pre-Socratics were all cosmologists. They were, as they called themselves then, or we call them to this day, natural philosophers. So philosophy begins as science. But as often happens in philosophy, it sort of lets, lets go of it and allows science to grow in its own right. I mean, that's a big issue about philosophy of science and so on. So natural sciences, I agree with you. They continue to be what the pre-Socratics, or some of them at any rate in the beginning, referred to as the world or the natural world. You know, the first philosophical statement is, or utterance is all is water. Uh, and and fine, and someone else says all is air, and someone says it's an atom, and so it goes forever and ever. And that is obviously the case that natural sciences, and God bless them, they do a lot of good, I, I suppose, should continue to unravel the mysteries and secrets of the universe. That's fine. There is something fundamental to philosophy, namely, it is to an extent a human enterprise. We ask uh, at least two questions. Uh, in other words, who are we or what are we or how do we combine, as I said before, our spirit with our animal nature and so on and so forth. And I suppose, but that's a, another long lecture, that it places us as observers versus the universe. But leave that aside. So natural philosophy is part of philosophy, nowadays more in science, and we should all support their inquiry. However, we should be careful not to allow science to determine, if you like, or to inform or to underpin the way we live life or the way we uh, construct po politics or the way we develop ethics. So the, there is a dangerous overlap or dangerous intrusion of science into human matters who, which cannot be settled alone on scientific merit. And I tried humbly to offer an example from my field, namely psychopathology or mental illness or, me, or, or mental health. Uh, but in across the board, in every field of life, let's say education, obviously health, politics, uh, well-being, science cannot, will never be able to give us an answer to the questions that kick-started philosophy in the first place. And so what's the problem? I don't see a problem. I support science wholeheartedly. I want science to get on with it. And I want science to unravel uh, the mysteries of the universe and my body or, or, or human body or uh, even psychology to some extent, why people behave as they do. Are they rational? Are they not? Are they collaborative? Are they competitive? All these things science can contribute a great deal. But ultimately, I don't know even where to put the line, and I'm prepared to change the line, 
But ultimately, there is no answer to philosophical problems in science. That's, the, that's a very uh, humble attempt to answer the first question. I don't know. You, by all means, I look forward, Elmo, to many uh, discussions, and by all means, uh, uh, we can develop it further. And I stand to be challenged by anyone and everyone. I want. I welcome. Now, the second. Sorry, go on. Okay, the second question. Remind me because I sort of got carried away a little bit. Okay, so. We start where you um, offered Nietzsche as an example. I don't want to sound dramatic that Nietzsche was the least or the most misunderstood philosopher in the history of philosophy. I don't want to say dramatic statements, but I want to say he is very misunderstood, to say the least. And it is well known in the history of philosophy that people took him, leave aside Hitler and all the rest of it, but people took him out of context and therefore ended up seeing him as the opposite of what Nietzsche says. And I'll summarize in two sentences. Nietzsche is above all a moral philosopher. Nietzsche is concerned that as he sees it, people are losing the foundations of morality and ethics. Nietzsche sees that absolutes and universals are falling apart. Nietzsche sees the rise of emotion and the rise of psychology and the rise of rom romanticism and the rise of the individual as a challenge to eternal truth. Whether he support, would have supported this truth otherwise is a moot point, and perhaps we could address it at another time. But what Nietzsche says is what Nietzsche offers above everything else is his concern rather than his remedy. Nietzsche is not telling people not to be moral. He seeks a new morality because very acutely he observed that the old morality will not hold. And he's concerned about the future. He can see ahead or foresee the collapse of norms and social uh, constructs, or however you look at it, because the times have changed so radically, scientific revolution or whatever, discovery of the Western Hemisphere, you name it, commerce, trade, empire, call it what you like, rise of nationalism. He sees that the old framework by which people could develop a moral framework by which they regulate their social interaction, I repeat, is collapsing in front of his eyes, whether the rest of us would have been so forth seeing or so able. So he tries to say whether he succeeds or fails, whether it comes across as too individualistic or too emotional or too heroic or too power driven. I don't know. We can debate that. Most people who speak about Nietzsche have not read him. I have read him. 
very young I read him. I was fascinated by him. Like many people, I'm not saying I'm the only one. And what Nietzsche tries to do is reconstruct, or I would call it nowadays reformulate or reconceptualize morality. So people are mistaken if they follow content rather than process. That's that's the the idea that whilst in his attempt to construct, he ends up veering into power and all the rest of it. The very fact that he tries to construct is far more important, namely to realize how worried he was about the collapse into what people say he wanted it to be. It's not true. He simply, I repeat myself, he simply was aware that morality has lost its ground. It's the other way around. I put it very provocatively, but I'm not the first to say that. It's the other way around. Far from advocating immoral conduct, he was trying to uh, develop a morality that will hold people moral. That's Nietzsche. Now we could go beyond Nietzsche, because Nietzsche now is old hat, arguably. We, we could go into Rawls and into um, uh, 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 Marty Hassan, or however you pronounce his name. All sorts of attempts have been made recently to anchor in law or justice, rather, uh, human behavior. And it's all very interesting. And I, I, I don't know. But I would say, as a philosopher, that the worry is never that people will not adhere to social norms. I, I say it provocatively, Elmo. The worry is that people do. That is the worry. And uh, the only answer lies in thinking or questioning moral, ethical, social frameworks. And ethics is a social construct. Morality itself is a social construct. I am far more radical than Nietzsche. Nietzsche didn't dare to, <laughs> arguably, to say that it is a social construct, everything under the sun. But it's not that I'm more courageous than Nietzsche, it's that I stand two, 200 years later, nearly, uh, with the benefit of all the people I have read, and I'm prepared to say, that the answer uh, to things is to question them rather than to adhere to them. And so, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a social construct, ethics and morality. Then uh, if, if, if a human being were to truly believe and uh, ignore the not traditional social values by which they, where they attain morality, then it's just a social construct and everything is meaningless. Yeah, that's that's the whole point, I think. Right? No. Mm -hmm. No. <laughs> sorry, sorry that I bat in Elmo. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's okay. No, it's not. And now we come to the crux of it. Uh, as I said at the start, philosophy is a quest for freedom in the realization that we are not free. And the notion of being a slave does not go, or not free, does not go into being a slave 
or being physically constrained or being uh, uh, tied up to a master. The notion of not being free goes to the very heart of meaning, as you put it, and existence. It's a, it's a big hypothesis that says we enslave ourselves collectively or individually. We stand in the way towards our freedom. We, as a result of not scrutinized or unscrutinized social construct, constructs assimilated uh, uh, without sufficient crit critical thinking, end up enslaving ourselves and thereby being removed from ourselves. Bear with my language. In other words, human beings, I put it like that, are not human. The human in human beings has long been subservient to other aspects of being, to other aspects of living or thinking or feeling or adhering to ideologies or being part of society. So we are more, it's, there is a new concept that I try from time to time to use called socio. It's not exactly like society, but it suggests that we are more social than human. And in order for us to be human, we need to challenge the socio within us, never mind around us. Because otherwise we are, so it appears, condemned to a second degree existence. We are not ourselves. It sounds so funny that, but that's how philosophy is born. The distinction Plato makes between appearance, which is what most people otherwise would say is existence or is substance or is being, and between what he was, what he found very difficult, and all of us found very difficult to uh, describe or define. If everything is an illusion, if everything is an epistemological, uh, you know, um, slippage, if we don't really manage to know, or even based on empirical evidence and our senses and our own experience, if all this fails to take us, take us to what we are or what the world is, then what is it that the world is? And as you know, it gives rise to endless debates and discussions. Can the world be without us knowing that it is? Can is is being dependent on knowing you know endless such questions that are very interesting but i think i would put it as ever more provocatively we not only don't know ourselves we are aren't ourselves by virtue of ignorance or false knowledge of false awareness or adhering to priestly invocations, or however you want to put it, or being conf or conforming to social pressure or peer pressure, or merely thinking that we are, uh, you know, ignorance is bliss, that we are happy as we are. Endless such things take us away from ourselves. So not only we don't know who we are, 
we are not even what we think we are. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna stop you there, but uh, uh, I hate to break it to you, but it appears that uh, using your own uh, logic of everything is social construct, uh, you're just yes. trying to create a new religion by which uh, it appears that hell is not know us knowing ourselves it's our present self and heaven is an attainable goal by which we find who we are and we become who we are and that we become who we are and so it's a half it's like a half-assed alternative to religion and it's it's still no different from uh what has already been achieved and so uh To put it plainly, I would say that there is a lot of debate, but uh, there, that is why there's a growing group of uh, growing nihilism, because uh, people, ha- humans have decided to leave uh, uh, absolute or leave sources of morality and just live upon wh- who they are and what they believe in. I know, you know. <laughs> anyway, it's the, I, you say you hate to tell me fine I welcome anything you want to say but in the history of philosophy at least what I studied it is the other way around of what you say namely the priest as they say uh, precedes the philosopher in other words the invitation to be as we are now is religion including morality the way we are it's not merely uh, casting doubt on reality as you try to, it's a big debate between you and I if you like it's it's not that what I say is uh, simply questioning you know, the way society is, or justice, or, or hierarchies, or, or, or biology, that's not it, at least the way I understand it. The problem from the beginning, from the beginning, and it causes lots of problems for philosophers, is that philosophy is a grand hypothesis that says the way we live I don't know if the way we are, maybe that's taking it too far, but the way we live, the way we define ourselves, the way we construct things has been imposed on us before philosophy came to question that uh, uh, tradition or that uh, way of life. And philosophy says about itself, you by all means challenge me, But philosophy says that everything, or maybe I take it to be everything, uh, is or follows from the priest, as they say. Priest, I don't mean only the priest or in Christianity and so on. Priest is, you know what priest means, yes? It means hierarchy. The priest comes from authority. The priest is the idea that I am to be told 
by long-established institutions and the way things are run, the merits or other or the reality or otherwise of what goes on around me, that I am mere individual and I am to uh, I, I have to confront in my short life the uh, as you put it, the 100 years or whatever of civilization. And that no individual can, I understand all this and I don't challenge, I merely say that philosophy is upends what you said. And what you say upends what, as I understand it, what philosophy said at its inception. Namely, that what you call, I, I put it on you, Elmo, but don't take it personally, what you call reality is religion. And philosophy is an attempt, an attempt, not that I detest religion, I have nothing against religion, but it is an attempt to liberate uh, people from what the priest told them they are. Now, just one more statement. Uh, there is a sociologist called Emil Durkheim in 19th century, early 20th century France. And he says that religion is the socio, that God is the socio. But the reason be people believe in anything is because as they come together, they face the ineffable. They don't do it, strictly speaking, on their own. In other words, other people make them religious. Other people, not themselves. And why other people make them like that? It's because the socio is not understood. My fellow human beings from the beginning are a mystery to me. I cannot really connect with them. Many philosophical traditions say that. As a result, religion is born and God is born from the socio. And so the answer is very simple. I, I simplified no end. The answer is very simple. Once we work out the socio, we will no longer accuse each other, you, me, or I, you, of being religious, because there will be no need for it. Because the need for religion stems from the fact that we failed to even address, let alone crack, this idea of the socio. Yeah. Are you with me? Yeah. And, bro, it's been uh, one hour and 22 minutes now, and it's been a great conversation. And I hope that we can continue this in the next episode. Uh, would you be all right with that? Yes, of course. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Joel. So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. Thank you.